0: Welcome to Asset Protection today with Attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio six eighty WPTF. Good Saturday morning to you, Jason Kong. Here with Bill Alexander and uh, Bill, we're uh, in an a, a interesting situation here, just post uh, Hurricane Florence, and uh, we just want to make sure that everyone knows that our hearts go out to those who've been affected by the storm. It's uh, it's, it's been a challenging week for everyone.
1: Well, no question about it. Um, truthfully. Uh, for those of us who've been out of harm's way, you know, all of this rain we can uh, just chalk up and let it flow off our backs and all of that good stuff. But uh, you know, the the rains and the flooding and and, and actually the flooding is far more da- dangerous than Absolutely. the than the winds. Uh, even though we have some wind too, and you know, some power outages and 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 the like uh, and. You know, in a lot of ways, for those of us who are not right on the coast, uh, <laughs> the um, the anticipation, truthfully, is worse than the storm itself. Although. Um, we have to find something to do inside <laughs> unless you unless you just like to be a duck uh, and be outside on on those kind of things so it's you know but we we do um want to wish people well in this time of of difficulty and tragedy for uh, a, a number of people, and so our hearts go out to those folks for sure. Um, uh, certainly uh, on this particular storm we had plenty of warning so for those folks who uh, actually didn't heed the warning and stayed in harm's way uh, they have themselves to blame but the property damage piece is um, one that we need to talk about a little bit Um, uh, and maybe this is a bad time to talk about it but folks might remember it Uh, and that is that uh, the tax law has changed as it relates to your ability to deduct losses on account of storms or fires or whatever that might uh, affect you. And obviously right now we're looking at wind and flood uh, damage uh, to, to many, many homes. And so uh, uh, what what's the key ch- – the key change. Um, the bottom line is the casualty deduction, and what that basically means is if you have a casualty loss, in other words, you've been hit by a major fire or flood or wind damage or whatever, uh, and you're uninsured or underinsured. In other words, you've had a loss, but it's not insured. Well in previous years, you could deduct that loss. Now, you cannot deduct that loss. It's been taken away with one important exception, and that is that if the area is uh, named a federal disaster area, then, and then you have an uninsured loss, you can deduct it. But if you're unlucky and i mean it's lucky unlucky i'm not sure if that's the appropriate word but the bottom line is if you have the same loss and you're outside the federal disaster zone there is no casualty loss at all now frankly i think that's really bad law if you will but that's what congress did and from my perspective uh, whether you're in a federal disaster zone or not, you, you should be able to deduct uh, from in your income tax uh, a, a loss. I mean, just think about – I mean, don't think about the flooding and the losses that we've had here because much of the state will be a federal disaster zone for that, I think. But let's say you just have a house fire and you've, you, you've got uh, – and you're uninsured – Or or underinsured, and you have a a major loss, and let's say you've had a fifty thousand dollar loss, but you still you know you can't deduct it, so you still have a bunch of taxes to pay at the end of the year, and (laughs) you don't have any money to pay the tax because you've had to repair your home. You know, there's something wrong with that. Uh, Federal disaster zone versus not. Uh, You know, I just think congress needs to relook at that that's just not right in my my mind but that's the change in the law now if you had a if you had a disaster strike last year not a problem you can deduct it this year sorry if you're not in the federal disaster zone you can't deduct it that's that's just horrible but that's the way it is and it's going to be really bad on those folks who've had a loss and they're not in the federal disaster zone
0: yeah, uh, that's that's unfortunate, as you hinted at, and uh, it just seems a, a little arbitrary because, you know, a, a disaster for one person is, is still a disaster, whether or not they fall within that designated federal disaster area.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Well, Bill, we've got a lot that we want to touch on today, uh, and uh, we've got plenty of topics that we need to address, and uh, we've also got a, a congratulatory message that I, I want to send your way, but we'll do that right after this. Stick around. You're listening to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Asset Protection Today with attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF. Jason Kong here with Bill Alexander on this Saturday morning. And Bill, I want to give you a, a big congratulations. I know you. Uh, you don't like to uh, brag about anything like this, but I'm going to brag on you a little bit because I think this is a huge deal. But uh, we are now, well, I am now in the presence of the 2018 Elder Law Attorney of the Year. And this is the third time you've won that award, Bill. That's, that's a big deal.
1: Well, well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. It's, it's pretty humbling to tell you the truth now. Um, it it is a statewide award it's not a national award but even so uh, for the state of North Carolina it's a pretty big deal and and it, it certainly um, it, is something that I, I'm proud of and I appreciate you bringing it up because I I wouldn't do that <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it it makes me feel good about the fact that uh, I I'm in a position to help people and actually help a lot of other attorneys too, which I've always tried to do, uh, because the area I talk about is, is a very complex area. It's hard to learn, and experience does matter. Um, there there's so many uh, rules and that change often. Um, but anyway, the recognition means an awful lot to me, and I, I appreciate you bringing it up.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I just think it's it's a testament to you and, and your passion and your expertise in this field. Uh, three times in the last seven years you've won this award, and that's uh – that that's that's a huge testament to you, Bill. So congratulations! Well, I know you don't want you. me to drone on about this, <laughs> but uh, I, I think that's that's just a big deal. And again, it's uh, it, it's pretty cool to have you a part of WPTF and and to help out our listeners. Well,
1: it, it's my pleasure. And and uh, this is as you know, I I really enjoy this radio show because I get to talk about anything I want to talk about, and uh, hopefully, folks who listen. Uh, get at least one little jewel during the hour, (laughs) if not more. Um, uh, So anyway, we were talking about public policy, good or bad. uh, And, you know, in the last uh, session, we were talking about the the change in tax law as it related to folks who have casualty losses and the fact that uh, um, it's an unfortunate change in the law, quite frankly. But there are a lot of other deductions from your income tax that have gone away um, uh, from the new tax law, which can be very unfortunate depending on uh, who you are and what what you've got. But uh, another area of public policy, if you will, are changes in Medicaid and how that works. And one of the biggest concerns for families who go on Medicaid is the fact that uh, most people know that there is what's called Medicaid estate recovery. And that's where the state of North Carolina tries to get their money back when a Medicaid recipient dies. And so I'm going to say this, and then I will repeat it when I finish this little segment. But the key to avoiding estate recovery— uh, if you're out there and you have a family member that's already on Medicaid or because they're in a nursing home particularly, but they're, they've been on Medicaid and you've never seen a lawyer, never seen an elder law attorney, the bottom line is, is that it is critical that folks go to an elder law attorney for assistance while your loved one is alive going to an attorney after death when medicaid estate recovery has already attached is the kiss of death i mean the bottom line is that uh you have lots of ways to avoid estate recovery if you see the right elder law attorney who understands how to avoid estate recovery however if you don't and your loved one dies and then you go see a lawyer the opportunities for avoiding estate recovery are you're, – you're trying to climb a real high mountain. It's very, very difficult. I'm not saying it's impossible, but you've basically cut off both arms and legs of the attorney in terms of trying to, to actually uh, meet your goal, which is to avoid estate recovery. Now, with that said, last week I mentioned the fact that there is enhanced – a state recovery. And, and I, I must admit that um, because it just came out uh, you know a little over a week ago, right right before our last broadcast. And I didn't have a, an opportunity to read it carefully. I just read it uh, very briefly and I was going, oh no. But truthfully, when I went back and, and read it, it, there are some changes that were uh, recently approved and they're now being implemented, but they're not as significant as I thought they were. So truthfully, um, it's um, not a big deal. Uh, and that's, at least for those of us who know what we're doing, it's not a big deal. That's, that's the key. Uh, but again, it's so complex. Any family that thinks they can go it alone, uh, for the most part, are making a huge mistake. Uh, Now, there are some basic rules that folks need to be aware of, and you don't need to be a lawyer to understand it, okay? And, And so, okay, you have a loved one who's on Medicaid. If your loved one dies, survived by the spouse, in other words, they're uh, husband or wife uh, survives them. The, the, that is the healthy spouse, the one at home. Uh, there is no estate recovery, at least not at that point, when the, the, the uh, community spouse survives the Medicaid uh, recipient. So that's an important rule for folks to know. However, it's also important to know that um, Uh, that you still need to see an elder law attorney to make sure that there's no estate recovery when the spouse dies. So that's an important (laughs) because they can go after that too. That's one of the things that was implemented last year. So uh, that's really an important rule for folks to know. So you can't avoid going to an elder law attorney. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) So it's really important. Now, there's some other rules that are important, too. If, you, if your Medicaid recipient is young, and by young, not a senior, uh, and they are survived by a minor child, um, well, actually, a child who is under 21, so that's actually even a little more liberal than minor child, which is 18 now, uh, age of majority. So if you are survived by a child who is under 21, or they are blind or disabled, again, there is no estate recovery. So you might say, and one of the questions I had, well, what does it mean to be blind? I mean, because we know a lot of folks who have impaired vision, and and sometimes they're considered blind, and sometimes they're just considered they have bad eyesight. So what's blind? Blind, it means uh, your corrected vision, not your true vision. Your corrected vision in both eyes is uh, 2,200 or worse. So pretty bad eyesight. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's the kind of thing where uh, – and that means your corrected vision. That's a person who is considered legally blind for disability purposes, social security purposes, Um and Medicaid estate recovery purposes. So uh, now here's another thing that's interesting. Uh, (laughs) The rules don't define child, all right? So uh, now you might say, well, we all know what a child is, right? Well, what about a stepchild? The the bottom line is uh, right now because the manual does not define – it defines everything else, but it doesn't define who a child is. And so right now, if you have a stepchild who is under 21, blind or disabled, then, um, uh, then you will avoid a state recovery. Now, here's the other thing that's really important. Uh, Let's say you're trying to preserve your home, which for most people on Medicaid is the most important asset. Um, You're trying to avoid that. uh, And you have a 20-year-old or a blind child or a disabled child, and they live anywhere in the world. In other words, they don't live with you. They don't live at home. They live in Timbuktu, (laughs) wherever that is. Um, You avoid state recovery. In other words it doesn't it's not related to do they live in the home that you're trying to protect it's do you have a child and at this point stepchild who is under 21 blind or disabled anywhere in the world that's pretty cool Uh, in terms of it being a big exception that a lot of folks don't realize now when it comes to disability what does that mean (laughs) well Uh, It means this. If you've been determined to be disabled by Social Security, you meet the test. Or if you are a veteran with an in-service disability rating of 100%, you meet the test. Now, if you're a veteran with a 70% disability, you don't meet this test, okay? But if you are... um, If you have a child who um, is 100% disabled from the VA uh, system, then that meets the test. Now, what happened? This is something that a lot of folks don't realize, and this is something that is really important for folks because I'm trying to give you the secrets of what uh, can help a family avoid a state recovery. Uh, If you're over 65, you cannot get a disability determination from Social Security. Did you know that? Well, I mean, let's say that you were disabled at 45 and your own um, Social Security disability uh, income, SSDI. uh, When you turn 65, uh, oftentimes you're converted over to just regular Social Security um, rather than the disability. I mean, your income basically can can potentially go up, but it uh, can stay the same as well. So if you're 45 and you've suffered a disab- uh, disability, then Social Security will look at you and give you a, uh, you know, either say you're disabled or, or not. But if you're 65 or above, Social Security says go away. We're, we are not, even going to consider you because you're old. <laughs> now, that offends me, folks. I just want you to know that I don't consider those of us who are over 65 necessarily to be old, <laughs> but, uh, but why is that important? Well, the truth is that they um, uh, uh, you have to have a way of determining whether someone is meets the test of of uh, being disabled if you're over 65. Well, here's, the, uh, here's an important secret that uh, if you're over 65 and you've never been in the military, then do you have a process to determine if you're disabled? Yes, you do. You have to go to your doctor and get a certification from your doctor that you are in fact disabled and meet the, the test um, for disability under the social security rules well you think about that jason how many people who are over 65 could meet the disability test probably a lot <laughs> a lot more than you think mm-hmm. so the bottom line is there is a process let's say you're um uh you, you you know, you're 90 years old and you have a a son who is uh, 67 years old uh, and has been living at home and is disabled, but they've never received Social Security disability. Well, if if they are really in that uh, crunch uh, and the doctor certifies that they're disabled, you've made, met the disability test to avoid a state recovery. So th- those are some pretty important rules. Now, there's also uh, rules that are fairly complex uh, as it really relates to an undue hardship. In other words, you apply to avoid estate recovery uh, because of undue hardship. And it's almost always regarding uh, Low-income folks that have very little, and they have a small house uh, that's that one of the children or more of the children are living in, uh, and there's very little income uh, in that household. Well, you might be able to meet the undue hardship test, and that's another way to avoid a state recovery. Or I'll go back to what I said in the very beginning. Let's say that none of this applies to you in terms of the exceptions to the rule. you need to go to an elder law attorney prior to your loved one's death to see what can be done to avoid estate recovery. That is key. And actually, to make sure that these tests are applied in an estate recovery situation, again, going to an elder law attorney is in anyone's best interest as it relates to uh, those those matters. Um, So, you know, I, I think that all of... That can be very, very important to families that are already having, you know, having a loved one in a nursing home uh, is and on Medicaid is tough enough. But then, you know, the to it's sort of like the flood, you know, to have the the tragedy occur and all of the the uh, work and emotional stress that goes with it, and then to have insult to injury by losing your home is not what you want to do. You, you basically can avoid it. You can't avoid the stress from taking care of a loved one, uh, but you can avoid the financial loss if if you just do what's what's in your best interest.
0: Yeah, as with so many things on this program and, and things outside of this program, uh, planning goes a long way. And uh, if you know someone who is uh, on Medicaid and uh, is worried about the estate recovery issue, you may want to reach out to Bill, schedule an appointment. You can do that online at wga WGALaw.com. That's wga WGALaw.com. Or you can call the office at 919-256-7000, 919 2567,000 uh, if, if you're worried about this estate recovery. And uh, uh, if you want to reach out to the 2018 Elder Law Attorney of the Year here in the state, uh, Bill's the guy. So, again, WGALaw.com. A quick break and back. You're listening to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF. News Radio 680 WPTF. You're listening to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander. You can find more about him at WGALaw.com. WGALaw.com. Jason Kong here with Bill Alexander. We're talking about. Medicaid, and Bill, before the break, we were talking about estate recovery, but there's still more aspects of Medicaid that you want to dive into here. I,
1: I do. There, there are a couple other things that are coming. They're not here quite yet. They are here to some degree. But again, we're into public policy and how that will affect uh, folks who need long-term care. Uh, which, which is a huge concern for us. It's it's uh, really really important, and um, uh, there is on the books what uh, right now what is will occur. It's a transition period for particularly for Medicaid at home to managed care. Now, what that basically you say? Well, what's managed care? That basically means where. Uh, you will not be able to go to your own doctor um, unless your doctor is part of the managed care team. In other words, there will be groups uh, uh, where you'll be a member of that group and you have to go to that particular group of, of folks uh, who are paid um, uh, you know, to take care of everybody in that group. Where, um, uh, and that's a managed care system. Um, So now there's some grandfathering that will take place for about five years, but basically in a few years, we're going to see that transformation to managed care. Now, truthfully, it might work well, and it might be a disaster. That's... um, uh, you know that's impossible to know at this point. It's certainly going to make it more difficult, I think, for folks who are not in urban areas. Um, I mean, urban. I mean, rural areas have their problems already with ne- without having sufficient doctors and the like. But it it may mean that they have to travel to two or three counties over in order to get the the care that they need. So we'll. You know, that I don't know enough about to say it's going to be this way or that way, but it's uh, all I can um, say is that uh, for those folks who are on Medicaid in an at home situation, uh, their uh, care uh, being provided is going to change significantly over the next few years. Now, it's also important. Now, we already have, and a lot of folks don't know about it, I've talked about it, it's called the PACE program, the program uh, for all-inclusive care for the elderly. That's what PACE stands for. Uh, It is a managed care program, and it's actually pretty good. You know, I like PACE. It really helped. Now, one of the reasons I like PACE is it's the only program that uh, basically takes the position that We are trying to keep people out of nursing homes. That's what PACE is all about, trying to keep people at home. Well, and this is going to confuse folks, but very few people can actually qualify for the at-home Medicaid program. But PACE is not that program, okay? It's a managed care program for folks uh, who would otherwise need significant care, but they can—they ha- the family has a safety plan where the person can stay at home. That's huge. Okay, now, what's the bad news? Because I-, I like PACE a lot, particularly in the urban areas. It's great. However, the bad news is the legislature has capped the program. So if you don't have a, pro- a PACE program in your area right now, you're not going to get one until the legislature unfreezes the cap on uh, PACE programs. Now we have one that uh, works for Wake County uh, and Durham County. Uh, Chapel Hill is covered, Chatham County's covered, Cumberland County's covered. Um, you know there are actually 13 programs in the state, but that's it. We don't have one in Johnston County. We don't have one in Franklin County or any of the northern counties or any of the eastern counties. There's, there's only one PACE program east of I-95, uh, and that's Wilmington. You know, New Hanover County has a PACE program. They, In fact, they were the very first program in the state of North Carolina. But guess what? If you're in eastern North Carolina, it's not a program that's available to you. Well, let me tell you, you should call your... Legislators in Eastern North Carolina and say, "What gives? You know, this is a program that people in Raleigh get, but people in, uh, you know, Rocky Mount and Wilson and and Greenville and and Manio and uh, you you pick your place. Uh, um, if you're in Eastern North Carolina, you don't have this program available to you, and it's a great program, and it's all because of the legislature, they put a freeze on it." And that's something that re- – and this is what really bothers me. The legislature's clearly going towards managed care. I get that. You know, that's to save money. But then they've capped the programs to where a lot of folks in North Carolina don't have a managed care program available to them. What, what That makes no sense at all. If they're really interested in, in, in showing that managed care can work – give it to everybody. Don't don't limit it to the folks that live in Raleigh and Durham and Chapel Hill. It's it's got to be a program that's that's really available to the rest of the state as well. Cuz truthfully, PACE could be a great program if it was available to everybody. It's not right that it's not available. Now, that this is now there's another piece to this and that is that uh, there's a freeze on Medicaid beds. Um, and so, in essence, those uh, most of the institutions that exist today uh, are Medicaid. You know, they have most of their beds that are Medicaid-qualified beds or licensed beds, if you want to put it that way. But, you know, um, I'm part of the baby boom generation, and guess what's happening? There are a lot of us getting older. And, you know, the truth is, is – Medicaid beds can be hard to find at times, depending on where you live. And so the older institutions have the licensed beds. The newer institutions may not have them until the legislature, uh, you know, unfreezes the, the the beds. And guess what? This problem is going to get worse and worse and worse. And this is one of the most important public policy decisions around it that people don't see because you don't see freezes on beds until you're trying to find one. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, uh, you don't see the freeze on the PACE program, the managed care for, to keep, help keep you at home. And I hate to say it, but there's a huge public um, benefits program um, uh, uh, policy, if you will, or prejudice towards pushing people into nursing homes as opposed to trying to keep them at home. And guess what? Nobody wants to go to a nursing home. They much prefer if they can get the help that they need at, a, at home. And, and our leaders need to put that into practice. You know, How do we accomplish that and save money at the same time? It's a heck of a lot cheaper to have somebody at home then it, and to help them, give them the help they need, then it is to force them into a nursing home so that they can get the care they need uh, on Medicaid. And, you know, people just need to open their eyes to the fact that it's a huge problem. And it's going to get bigger and, bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger as we baby boomers get older. Now, I'm, I'm basically saying all of the young folks out there that are 65 and older, we may not have a problem today. But what's it going to look like five years from now or 10 years from now? It's just going to get worse and worse and worse as our generation gets older. And this is something that the legislature is trying to desperately to save money and not put as much money into it. I get that, too. Uh, but it, it, it's something that, um, that they're really going to have to tackle and do it well.
0: Yeah, the demographics don't lie, and the statistics are all there that uh, this is the direction that we're heading. We're an aging population, and um, things need to be done to accommodate for that. So that's, that's a good point, Bill. A quick break and back. You're listening to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF. To asset protection today with attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio six eighty WPTF. Jason Kong here with Bill Alexander, and we're uh, having an interesting discussion today. And Bill, we're uh, going to turn now to long term care insurance. This is something that uh, comes up frequently on the program. Well,
1: the the it, it's sort of a no brainer. Um, it it's far better for anyone to have long term care insurance, adequate long term care insurance, than it is to go on public benefits. All right. the The problem is is that most people wait too long to uh, seek long-term care insurance. So, you know, a lot of folks don't even think about it until they're getting ready to retire, and then they're thinking, "Oh my my goodness, you know, 15, 20 years from now, I might need care, and I don't have enough money." And at that point, long-term care insurance is way too expensive. So, the first practical advice is. To start looking at long-term care insurance uh, when you're in your 40s or even earlier, but certainly in your early 50s would be uh, 40s and early 50s is the optimal time to do it because you want to look into it before you have any health issues uh, and when you can afford it. You know, because the younger you are when you actually get the insurance, the least the less expensive it's going to be throughout your lifetime. And that makes it affordable when you retire and you're on a fixed income. Um, So that's really important. Uh, And even parents and grandparents should think of ways where they can help their children because most of us, we've waited too long. And so we can't get it for ourselves, but we see how important it is. And so we may want to go ahead and help our children or grandchildren get it. Uh, while they're at a point in their lives where they're not thinking about it, just like us, but at the same time, you know enough to help them get it. So that's important. Now, here's something that's really important as it relates to a state recovery. Um, And most people get this wrong. Uh, The long-term care insurance industry wants you to know, and this is true, that if you have long-term care insurance that qualifies as a partnership plan, with medicaid then it allows a person to keep more assets and still qualify in other words they can have more accountable assets and qualify for medicaid however there's a secret in there that they're not telling you the state's not telling you and it's a zinger and so here it is if you use your long-term care partnership plan in order to qualify for Medicaid with more assets, then there is a double-enhanced recovery when you die. In other words, the law is different where the state can more easily get your uh, house and your other property at your death if you use the partnership plan to qualify for Medicaid. So guess what? I never use the partnership plan with my clients that have long-term care insurance because it can run out. And the bottom line is I never use the partnership plan to qualify for Medicaid. Never, ever, because of the enhanced estate recovery. And it's a dirty little secret if you get right down to it, because that's not – I mean, you, you're trying to get the benefits without having this horrible estate recovery, and that's where the enhanced estate recovery comes in. When you when you use because you don't have to use your partnership plan in order to qualify for Medicaid, and with help like that we give our clients, you don't need it. So why give them an extra edge with estate recovery? And that's what it does. Now, the last thing I want to talk about are is the. ABLE accounts. Now, folks, most folks won't have a clue what that is, but if you have a special needs child or grandchild, you and, uh, uh, those folks should know that North Carolina has uh, an ABLE account that is available to those special needs children, uh, and it's through the North Carolina Treasurer's Office. Uh, and un- unfortunately, um, I mean, there's some good things about it and bad things about it. You can only – and it doesn't matter how many people are pushing it, money into the account. You can only put up to $15,000 per year in an ABLE account. Uh, I wish the law were different on that, but let's say a child receives $50,000 from a grandparent who dies, and it's an inheritance well, if you're uh, on Medicaid as a uh, SSI recipient because you're a special needs child, um, then that inheritance will take you off Medicaid. Um, uh, now, you could take $15,000 of it and put it into an ABLE account, and that's okay. But now you got $35,000 left. So you either have to, quote, spend it down in the month received on – Things that would not make you – would not disqualify you or because it's your money, you have to do a, uh, an immediate special needs trust, what we call a D4A. It's a payback trust if any money's left at, at the child's death. Um, but the, in essence, there are ways that that has to be completed. But So those are your options. Spend it down – uh, get a qualified uh, D, what's called a D4A special needs trust or use an ABLE account. So if you uh, – those are the, the keys. But here's the secret that I want folks to know who may have a special needs children. You should have a, an ABLE account. And even a D4A special needs trust can fund an ABLE account. Uh, so that's an important thing. However, what a lot of folks don't realize is that ABLE accounts, at least today, have more flexibility in what the money can be used for legally than a D4A trust. So the bottom line is, is that even if you have a D4A trust, you should have an ABLE account. Now, your ABLE account is capped at $100,000, and you want to keep it well below that because you never want it if you go over a hundred thousand, then it is countable accountable asset. So as long as it's a hundred thousand or less, it's non-countable and you can stay on Medicaid and the like. But you have to worry about that income as, you know, capital gains and those kind of things inside that account if if you have it well funded. Now, truthfully, the average account for most special needs people is five or ten thousand bucks. I think the average account is under five thousand. But the bottom line is it's uh, some things that uh, parents of special needs uh, children and grandparents of special needs children at least need to know some of the basic rules as to to why you should have an ABLE account and what are some of the caps that are uh, important regarding ABLE accounts. But we have them uh, in North Carolina, and you can also have an ABLE account in another state that qualifies in North Carolina as well. But the North Carolina rules are, are pretty good. And so I would encourage those folks with special needs children to look at ABLE accounts as a very positive thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, Bill, those were two great secrets that you doled out that segment. That was wonderful. Again, if you're interested in uh, scheduling an appointment with Bill, you can go online to WGALaw.com, WGALaw.com, or you can call the office at 919-256-7000, 919 2567000. A quick break and back you're listening to Asset Protection today with attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF. Welcome back to asset protection today with attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF. I want to remind you that you can register for the October seminar on Bill's website wga-law.com. It's free registration for the uh, October 10th seminar. Again, wga-law.com and you can also call 919 919- Two five six seven thousand. You can register or if you want to schedule an appointment to talk to Bill, maybe about some of the topics that we've touched on today, whether it's estate recovery or maybe you just want to say, hey, Bill, I want to congratulate you for being the 2018 Elder Law Attorney of the Year in uh, North Carolina. You can do that as well. Nine one nine two five six seven thousand. And folks can catch you tomorrow morning on the CW22, Bill, with your TV show, Money Secrets at 8 a.m. and they can also grab your book on Amazon. It's Money Secrets with Bill and Mike. That's... More tips and secrets from you, Bill. Well, thank you, Jason. I appreciate that. Yep, absolutely. Again, thank you so much for joining us this week. We'll hope you'll do it again next Saturday at 11. It's Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF. Have a great weekend.